Welcome to the Mitch Military Podcast, another episode. I'm joined by Paul Martinez and Patty Collins that are helping me co-host this uh, this evening. So, hello, you two. Good to see you guys hey, again. Guys. Hello. And so, we have a guest. Uriah Pop actually um, served in the military and we're going to, and the Army. And we're going to get into his backstory and his career and everything. But he's also got a really interesting job today and career. And so I want to get into that as well. So welcome first off to the show, Uriah. Appreciate you coming on Mentors Military. Hey, thanks for having me. Excited to do it. So where is home originally? Not now necessarily, but before you came into the Army, what did, what did you kind of call home? So um, I'm, I'm from a pretty strong lineage of a, uh, a military family. So my father was an artilleryman. Uh, and a warrant officer, and so um, we actually got to serve together. So, home has been all over the world. I, I graduated from Hawaii, and it's the nicest place that my dad served. So, oh my gosh. I'm going to go ahead and claim that as home. <laughs> That's a good uh, place. Because yeah. Fort Stewart, it, you know, Hinesville <laughs> was great, but uh, it doesn't beat uh, uh, the North Shore of Hawaii. So, was he probably one of the determining, you know, or people that most influenced you in terms of going into the uh, the army, or was it something else that that got you to go into service? Um, you know, I think that's one of those answers where everybody has a compel, you know, a canned compelling answer that, you know, honestly, I grew up military. It's really all I knew. Um, I didn't know anything, and you know, I went to Fort Knox High School for. A good bit of time and a lot of the dod schools are kind of been phased out um, with the exception of oconus um so it's really all i knew and it was kind of just natural you know i graduated my my parents did kind of encourage me to go to college but it just wasn't the path and wasn't the path the majority of my friends were going on and most of them were in you know some sort of delayed entry program so they would they were kind of joining they were going to basic between their junior and senior year coming back and you know telling these great stories and so you know that's kind of what i did that's what you know I'm sure we'll get into it but all my sons have done you know they're every one of my sons is either in service still or or has gotten out so um it's you know like i said it's kind of just been a way of life I think I can probably relate to that, Uriah, not necessarily from a DOD school, but being a Navy brat myself, you know, a, a military brat, I grew up in a community where the majority of people, that's that's what they were. They were, you know, brats themselves from the Navy. And so I didn't realize this until many years later. I think I was, I don't know, it was a 10-year anniversary, high school anniversary thing, or, uh, you know, graduation thing. And when I started looking around the room, I believe that there was like 50% or greater of our high school that ended up either going to the academy and going that route or going directly into military service of one branch or the other. And so I, I totally understand where you're coming from. But for me, it was to get out of a small community too, right? Because that kind of forms that bubble. And I wanted to get out of that. And you're right. Every one of us has uh, some kind of story that's, you know, th that leads us to that. And um, having grown up in the military, you know, and around it and stuff, it's certainly one of those things I would imagine for you is the same for me that stuck in your brain. It, it's comfort. You, you always know it's there, you know. It, it is. There's a sense of security. Yeah. Um, even, you know, it's even as crazy it is. You know, I, I lived off post most of my career. And, uh, and then when I got senior, it was kind of mandatory. I had to live on post. And, um, and then my wife has kind of taken a liking. So she's like, tells me all the time, like, I miss living at Bragg. I felt secure living on 
you know, I lived right across the street from the hospital. So it, you know, it's, yes, it is a security blanket, you know? Yeah. Well, and not to mention, you could probably come home every day at lunch and didn't have a long commute. And, you know, there's a lot of benefits there for sure. What was it that you enlisted into? What branch? So I joined as a um, 91 Bravo at the time, combat medic. Um, so I, I did the, um, back then they used to offer the um, station of choice. And so I went straight back to Hawaii and uh, um, I wanted to go back home. And I had, uh, married my wife at uh, um, basic training Christmas Exodus. So I was the, oh, the lonely guy who came back married. And, uh, and so... So, um, she was from Hawaii, so she was raised and growing up there. So, uh, I, that was my first station. So, um, that's kind of, that's kind of it. How was it going back? You know, like I did one of those and I don't know if you guys remember the whole recruiter, uh, hometown recruiter program. And I went to the hometown recruiter program and came back. It was well after they, they messed up my paperwork. I got one of those phone calls. I was probably already 13 months in the army and they go, Hey, we, we found your paperwork. We were so sorry. We'll, we'll send you whenever you want to go. And, and I get there and just going back home, I'm curious if you felt the same way, like you're walking back in and it's very different now walking in the door. Uh, you know, like in my case, half my friends were gone already to the military, you know, they weren't around. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think I similar experience. You know, um, I, I went to Milani High School, and it's one of the several high schools that are kind of military dedicated on the island, or a majority of the military families kind of go to those schools. So yeah, a lot of the kids had since moved on. Um, you know, I was pretty in. I moved there my senior year, so my dad just had got reassigned to Schofield Barracks from Fort Knox. So I, he was a drill sergeant for a long time, and we did. Um, so I was on Fort Knox since from like the eighth grade to the my junior year. And then I transferred to um, Mililani High School in Hawaii my senior year. So it was still unknown and I didn't really have any deep connections really um, other than, you know, my my uh, my wife and, you know, kind of a small circle of friends. Um, so, you know, it wasn't the same as probably if if I went back to, you know, uh, you know, Fort Knox, where I kind of had lived there most, I'd say majority of my, um, late childhood, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now you're walking back and it's really just like a first assignment. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm sure that was, uh, that was one of those assignments that I actually dreamed of. And unfortunately, when I got the call, if I remember correctly, and this was probably 2000, um, let's see, it would have been 90, 96 time frame, I think, or something of that na- uh, nature. They they had a requirement that if you had pets, I think you had to quarantine them for 12 months. And I think it was like that, six or 12 months. Does that sound right, Patty? Something like that? That's a long time. <laughs> I don't remember how long it was, but yeah, there was something crazy about that. Yeah, yeah and that was a deal breaker because we just got a, like a, a, a uh, puppy and I think she was like about you know 12 months old and that was just like we had small kids and there was like no way we're gonna put the family dog you know into a a quarantine for that long and but that was one of those places that I I definitely wanted to go to by the way it's our favorite vacation spot I I can't tell you how many times I've been there I absolutely love Hawaii so moving kind of moving forward where did you end up going after that then so after Hawaii I moved to uh Fort Lewis Washington okay um and did that for 
I, I wasn't there very long, two years. And then my, um, my dad actually went to warrant officers candidate school. Mm-hmm. And so, um, he got signed a third ID. And so then, um, I put in a 4187 to go to, uh, Fort Stewart and, um, got a sign there. And then really that's when things kind of picked up. He, uh, immediately third ID the first push into, um, you know, the GWAT and he was a, a radar radar warrant at the time division targeting officer. And so, um, so yeah, then I got, when I transferred, I didn't go to a, um, a line unit. I went to the hospital. So I went to win army community hospital at Fort Lewis as a medic. And then, um, so that was that rolled into that assignment before you were in a line unit. Okay. So how was it going from, you know, that environment and switching and stuff, you know, was it a, a big transformation um, for you? You know, I never, a lot of guys really struggle with that. Um, and I noticed it later as a CSM of a facility and having line medics come in who just really couldn't um, make the change. And um, I never, I, I enjoyed the med- medical aspect of it. I enjoyed medicine. So to me, it was a bit different. You know, it's a, it's much more, a daily operation mission is much more conducted like a business. You have beneficiaries that need taken care of day in and day out. So it's kind of a, you know, it is a no fail, you know, we have to provide for those beneficiaries. So, um, you know, it's what, it's a little bit different, but I enjoyed medicine and, um, you know, that aspect of it. So it really wasn't like I was that far, um, out of my element, if you will. Um, was it this, at this time frame and being around, you know, uh, rangers and, and those types of things that you started looking within the soft community or? So, so yeah, that's as, exa- well, no, here's how, here, so here's how it went. So, um, you know, I was a, a, a young medic and wanted to do great things at the time. And um, I had fast track pretty quick. I had made E6 in uh, four or five years. Um, and so, my dad instantly deployed and he was gone for, you know, the first couple of tours. He, the third ID did, I think three rotations. So he was gone for the initial push and then immediately rolled over into another job. Um, so basically what happened is I went to my CSM and I said, Hey, you know, I want to deploy. So basically all, a lot of the medics got pulled straight to fill the line is what happened. Um, they kind of uprooted the hospital um, and so he was like, Nope, I need you to stay here. And so it kind of, you know, I was like, Hey, I want to go like everybody else. And so I went and uh, called my, um, branch manager and I say, Hey, I need to be able to deploy. Like what, what do you have open? And he said, well, um, there's this new, new thing starting civil affairs. And if you're willing to go to the soft medic course, this was like 2000, in mid 2003 because before civil affairs was mostly 18 series guys kind of on their i don't want to say their retirement tours but kind of um it was what they did later on in their careers um so they were it was basically when the active duty battalion got kind of um they filled it with conventional mos's so there's initial push so he was like uh we're starting this new thing we're sending uh 68 whiskeys to this course and 
if you pass SOCOM and you'll go through the civil affairs medical sergeant's course and then uh, you'll you'll go to a team so I said sign me up so um, within a couple of months I was off to SOCOM I did BNOC and route I had made 86 but hadn't gone to BNOC yet so I did BNOC and route to SOCOM and um, before you know it I completed it and um, and got my wish to deploy I wasn't in the battalion for I didn't even finish in processing the battalion oh and was out the door to Afghanistan. So, um, well, that must've been quite interesting anyway, going from, you know, course to course to course. I mean, you're talking about, I just heard Beanock, Sockham, civil affairs, Sergeant course. Yeah. So, I mean, and then of course, walking in the door and immediately deploying what a shock. Sure. factor. Yeah. Uh, probably it, quite a bit. It on was the family. absolutely that. Yeah. I bet it, it yeah. was, you know, I can, it's one of the so um timmy strong was my csm um he's a well-known guy in the community um and later i figured out where he where he kind of cut his teeth at because i later went to that organization um but uh you know i can remember you know he's like hey can i need two medics to go out the door me and my good buddy of mine had just graduated and they were like absolutely we we were afraid we were going to miss the war i mean it's like you know, beginning of 2004 and we're like, yes, we, we need to go now. Yeah. Sign us up. And, you know, so I, you know, volunteered. And I, the funny part is I, I remember going to the, the teams of the attachment have already deployed. I think it was seventh groups first rotation. So we got, um, attached to, to siege of And then I got attached to a, a seventh group team in uh, DR and De Raoud, Afghanistan. And, um, I was like, what do I bring? And they're like, doc, bring what you need. And that was like, my packing was bring what you need. And so I brought everything, I, you know, tough box full of medical books. I didn't, you know, just straight out of school. I was like, every new medic was afraid to, you know, get there, not have what you need. So, um, that was my, yeah. I went from, like you said, school to school, to school to two days, you know, two or three days after in processing to on a plane. How, how good was your packing list in the end? Did you end up using a lot of that stuff or did you have a, a bunch of um, No, I, the funny thing is um, I didn't get cold weather gear. Oh. <laughs> so it was like back then was like RFI and I had missed the battalion's RFI. And so I got into country and uh, my team leader's like, hey, where's your cold weather gear? And I'm like, I think I still had a field jacket and I they, back then they were still issuing um, desert, you know, the desert cam and yeah. like the desert body armor. The de- So it was, I think I had a desert field jacket. Like it was oh my, my issue in a bear suit. Yeah. I had a bear suit. Those too. things didn't keep you warm at all. Yeah. So he sent me to the, he took me down to the, the North face store at green bean and like hooked me up with some clothes. <laughs> I'm curious about like Sockham looking back on it. I mean, you were one of the originals, I guess, to go through that program. Um, yeah, there was a couple. Well, for for the civil affairs course, we, there was yeah. um, I think there was a class before mine, and we all we we were kind of all senior NCOs at the time. We were all E sixes, E sevens, um, and I think you know most of the all the eleven Bravos who became team sergeants, they pulled them straight out of Ranger Battalion. So I think that was. They kind of pulled them out, and then all the engineers came from um, mostly the Bragg units, engineers, and then your team leader was branch and material, but most of them were. We had some um, 18 series, some 18 alphas, and then we had some that were 
they were just standing up the the civil affairs qualification course. Yeah. So yeah, at that time you didn't even have to go to it. You just, if you were a grad of your course, you just went and deployed and they caught you up whenever they could. Correct me if I'm wrong. Isn't civil affairs primarily now more reserve based than it is active? Yeah, it's always yeah. been 96% uh, reserve. So it's a revert. And then the one, um, I think the one, airborne uh, organization was the 96 at the time mm-hmm. so the 96 civil affairs battalion kind of is what's what's um was kind of the legacy um active duty unit which was only four percent of the force at the time i think we had we started echo company back then which was um echo and fox was which they were aor um, kind of aligned with the group. So every battalion was, or every company was aligned to the battalion, um, or every, every company was aligned to a group with the exception of echo company where I went and echo company was your SMU support. So we were assigned to the Ranger battalion. So my first rotation was what was called a regional deployment. So it was with a group. And then after that, we got on like the tier cycle. And so we had um, four companies or four teams within the company, and we would just rotate through the battalion. We, I never supported the battalions in um, Iraq. I always supported in Afghanistan. Yeah. So, I mean, that must have been uh, a pretty interesting time. I mean, you're like a legend here. I mean, we're talking about I early stage. That, I mean, <laughs> but, I mean, like early stage civil affairs and in Sockham and and you know with the civil affairs and all of that. I mean, you really came in. Um, you probably walked uphill, you know, barefoot in the cold the whole bit, right? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> No, you know, it's any, it's, so it's like most things new, right? It's, so I noticed this with several growing organizations now. Um, it's the, the willingness to go and do something different, but it's, everybody makes it harder for the next people after that. Oh, most so definitely. that's yeah. what I've kind of learned the way the military does things. It's like the first guys in, they kind of create it, get through the process. They take some risks, they get there and then they make it harder for everybody else to get in. That's so I'm going to say I had the easy path. Nobody ever says that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, and then there are the people that say back, back when it was hard, right? Yeah. No, it was, it was fun. I tell you, I, I enjoyed um, that mission set a lot. Um, it was, I, um, it was a lot of grad instant gratification kind of work. You know, you help folks um, supporting the regiment and the tier was a little bit different. Um, majority of the work was what's called like salacia condolence payments. So bad targets, um, tear people. It's like basically you folks go in and tear people's houses up and there's like a group of guys who like roll out in a, you know, soft skin Humvee and like, Hey, we heard, uh, something happened in your house last night. Uh, we're here to like make it right. Oh Yeah. Oh God, that kind of reminds me of back in the day where you do maneuver training and you'd have the guys riding around in the Humvees with the little white stripe around their uh, their uh, helmet and everything, and you they were the guys that were writing all the damage reports so they could play pay the local people um, for that's all. The, that's it. Yeah, for the all the death damage mitigation. That was kind of like any big uh, target that went bad that made um, kind of like international um, news that's mostly what we dealt with you know tough boxes full of money to make things right 
And I learned really quick that you know, life certainly has a price in that country. And it's it's very quick to be able to negotiate to that price. And that's what kind of um, um, what I did for quite a few tours um, was just basically that, you know. Yeah. What happened when you came back from deployment, uh, you know, get returned back to to Fort Stewart and well, actually you were at Bragg at this time frame. Yeah. Right? yeah. At that time I'd, I'd moved back. So, you know, a, a lot of, um, schools. So it seemed like that's all you, you know, my team started wanting me to hit every school there was. So between deployment, you know, on a, on a, those rotations, I kind of forget the things go into a blank, you know what I mean? Like yeah. I've actually think I've forgotten deployments. Um, but it seems like, you know, between I did like five rotations to Afghanistan back to back to back to back to back. And it seemed like it was, you know, go to Sears school between this deployment, go to this school. OK, we're going to send you this shooting course. OK, we're going to send you to this course, to this course. So it was there was never downtime because uh, they were building. Right. So they were what happened as the battalions built, um, they split. So the 96 became the 96th and 7th, and then the 96th and 7th became the 96th, 7th, and 8th. And then they made a new, so they it they didn't really get a lot of aggregate growth. Basically what they did is it just kept dividing. So you would go from different company and then you'd be on a different rotational. And so it'd be like, okay, I got home, but since we're the down team, we're ramping up for this next deployment yeah. because yeah. we're on this new chart. And so it kind of, um, you know, it was never ending, but I had a good time doing it. I heard that. Um, a lot. I had a good time up until the surge. Oh, and that's, um, that was hell. But, um, I've heard that a lot from like civil affairs and, uh, psyop the same thing. You know, the op tempo is one thing of deployments and stuff, but the op tempo when you come back is very much like what you just described. It's, you know, attending courses, it's, um, or training others. It's you know, doing things that in the civilian side is not just garrison, you know, going to an office, going to the gym and, you know, or doing those types of things, you know, you, you're constantly in a training cycle. And when you come out of the training cycle, you're going right back into deployment. And I know Paul that, and Patty, that's a, that's a lifestyle that you guys are very much familiar with as well. Oh yeah. Go, go, go all the time. There was a, I want to say it was about almost an 18 month period. And I, I was a keeping track on a calendar and I, I spent, I think six weekends at my house in 18 months. I'm like, this, this is not, not great. And if you look at your buddies that have families, I'm like, how are you keeping it together? How are you able to do this? Cause I've, you know, couldn't even have a pet. I was gone so much, but it's like you, you said, you're right. Yeah. You go to a shooting school, you do well. They're like, well, you're going to this other sniper course. And then you're going to go to this, you know, three week training and maybe you're going to get your EMT cert or there's just, there's always a training opportunity. And if you're, you're doing good, they'll stick you in that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That, that must've been very challenging um, with you and, and kind of being a newlywed as well. Cause I, I guess around this time frame, you guys hadn't been married that long. So I still considered it a newlywed. You're probably about five or six years in. Yeah. And I tell you, it's, it's really, it's kind of sad. You know, my kids remind me now, now that they're grown, you yeah. know, um, they're like, you were never there, you know, and it's, it's kind of, it's kind of almost hurtful, you know? And you know, it's just like, like, you know, you're right. You know, I was so busy. I didn't even take the time to stop to think about it. And that was kind of, 
at the time, all three of my sons were probably in middle school or elementary. And yeah, I had done, you know, like I said, four or five rotations to Afghanistan, then the surge, and then with schools all in between. So, and then before that, you know, I went through the whole pipeline where my family stayed in Stewart while I went through school. Um, and so, you know, it was, yeah, there's a good chunk of about, you know, I look back on my records and there was, I think, 11 year period where I deployed at least once every year for 11 years. And that's just deployments. That's not, you know, that's not counting. But yeah. that's everybody's story now. You know, it's it's nothing unique. That's that's just the life of being a soldier now that that garrison military that I entered into or is a, you know, now they don't know, you know, my kids who, you know, I have this son who was 11 Bravo in the 82nd and two kids who are in Intel. Um, they, um, that's all they know. They only know a deployment military. They don't know the, you know, the big field training exercise, military dog and pony shows, parades. And it's, it's, it's changed. It's evolved. And now senior leaders, the, the thing is, you know, as growing up senior leaders, we used to get kind of ridiculed by those old um, senior leaders who were from that era. Who was like, you guys don't know how to counsel. You don't know how to mentor. You don't know how to, you know, you, you just know how to deploy and prep. That's what you know how to do. You know, we, we were a fighting military. And so now what I see a majority of those guys are gone. So the, the, the senior leaders, that's all they know now is a, is a forward military that we don't know a garrison military life. Yeah. Um, We've talked about so, that. So, yeah. So there's all the struggles that come with that, you know, so I think all military families now, or, you know, when I grew up, my dad would went to Kosovo and Bosnia and, um, you know, he was, he was an artillery man. It field field is in his title field artillery. So he's, that's what he did. He went to the field. So yep. he'd be gone for 30 days and he'd go to the field and then he'd come back. And, you know, that was just kind of what, what we knew, but it's, you know, kind of now it's different. Well, your kids you mentioned are now in the military. So I'm curious that you, you brought it up about their perspective of how things were as they were children. How do they now look at that and see, what you went through now that they're an adult and living part of that themselves. Um, I, you know, if, if I'm being like transparent and honest, there's resentment. Um, there's some selfishness that I think should be expected that, you know, they deserve to have a family, a fully functioning family unit with a dad who was around. And so, um, you know, um, there's dark sides of my story, just like most folks. And, you know, my, my middle son, um, really struggled, um, really struggled and he went through some tough times and alcoholism. And, you know, I had my own, you know, struggles with PTSD and everything else that, that, you know, this, this, this story can grow rabbit holes really quick. But, um, so I think my older son, who's um he's now in uh, uh one of our smus the one of the ones that i was in he's now there he's kind of a legacy there and um he um i think he understands so he sees it he's he's a little bit matured and sees it now from his perspective of life and how he knows it and the work ethic you have to have and just the attentiveness to organization and 
you know, as, as ugly as it is, family comes second. I mean, it, yeah, it just does. And, um, you know, we, we preach different, but that's not reality. You know, that's not what we expect. Um, and so, um, you know, it's, I think he sees it. My youngest son still's got some maturing to do and he's, he'll be graduating airborne school here in like a week. I was going to, I was hoping I'd get to go down and see him. All my other sons graduated from airborne school and I got to go. So he's the, uh, are the they allowing everybody to get in there and start seeing some of the graduations? Because I knew that that was part of the issue with Fort Benning, right? You know. Yeah. The um. Oh, what do they call it? It's called a um. I can't think of the word, but it was like a a clean course or something like that, where basically there's no graduation, there's no family days, there's no just like the basic trainings and AITs are kind of now. There's they're kind of um, you know, they just. I guess they're a little bit risk adverse to that, you know, and trying to protect and make sure that they don't have to. Yeah. And and I could see, you know, they don't they don't want to get people held up in their their training tracks and stuff like that from getting an exposure or whatever. Well, I think all that you just described, you know, and the challenges that you have felt, you know, through um, trying to grow your military career and having a family and all that kind of stuff is, you know, really helpful to those who are listening because I I think that some people who may not have entered service yet or and are thinking that they want to go especially within the soft community need to you know kind of understand the sacrifices that a lot of those individuals end up um playing i mean they that you end up having those challenges it's real okay so if you're going to explain this story and it's not always heard make you know from the recruiter if you want to hear the full story and you want to hear about the challenges and the reality of going within those roles you've got to be able to embrace all of it and understand what it's going to take to be a part of that type of unit, you know? And so I think it's a very valid point. And, and I think too, with that, that there are possibilities of having post-traumatic stress or traumatic brain injury, uh, because your exposure to those types of opportunities are greater, you know, and that's also part of that story. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I, I think, you know, that's one of the things, I think we try to do at least through this um, platform is to share that reality, you know, and give people that proper perspective. People see photos out on social media. Um, They see, you know, hear cool guys stories, people write books or whatever that may explain things in a very different way that sounds like, you know, or through their video games or whatever. Hey, this is what I want to do. But you got to really understand the full package of what goes into that type of lifestyle and, I mean, I appreciate you sharing that story because it's a real story, you know, after you came in, you were, uh, at 96 and stuff. What, what happened after that? Where did you end up going to? So, um, so what happened is the, the, that it professionalized. So what they did is they created the MOS. So they created the 38 series MOS and they basically said, convert over and become a 38 series or find a new job. So that's kind of what happened to all the folks there. So a majority of the folks, like I kind of described before, they fast-tracked, they stayed. You know, there's a whole new MOS, and there's a pyramid. At the top of the pyramid's completely open, and they kind of uh, rocketed through the system. Um, and so me, I kind of wanted to stay a medic. Like, I, I love medicine and, and, and practicing it. So um, I had tried out, and a friend of mine had went up to um, an SMU in Virginia, so I went up there and and tried out to to be a medic up there and um, 
And then I did that for, for about six years. Did you get the civil affairs as your secondary? Is that something that you were able to pick up? So they didn't even, okay. I, I was wondering no. about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, it was the opposite. So they would let you keep your, your legacy MOS as kind of um, your secondary kind of, I think they do this similar with like 18 series. You okay. know, if you, if yeah. you, if you go through the path and you retain like 11 Bravo as your secondary MOS or whatever you started as. So they did that, but it wasn't, no, uh, it wasn't like I, we retained the identifier. So yeah. civil affairs medics. So your whiskey one identifier and your whiskey two or four, whatever it is for the, the sergeant's course. Um, but other than that, um, and really, um, you know, at, at that time I was an E7 when I tried out. And so, um, I went, I went up there and, um, there was really no need for me to, to kind of, to kind of go back, you know, they were, I still want to be a medic. So it, it worked for me, you know, they were at the time looking for people to be battalion, senior medics and staff jobs. And I wanted to, I was still was having fun. So, yeah. um, so I, you know, went up to be, a, um, a squadron medic and, and had a lot of fun and got to go on some more trips and, uh, do some, do some fun stuff and work with some great people. So what ended up, you know, finally getting you back, I guess, when you, when you went through the Sergeant Majors Academy and you, you pinned on, you know, they, they put you into a CSM slot within the hospital. Was it one of those things that you really kind of wanted to do or, or was that just part of the career progression? No. Uh, so <laughs> no, I actually, I, I fought it. Like I wanted to go. I, so hindsight's always twenty twenty. I'm glad I went the path I did now. Um, but I wanted absolutely nothing to do with El Paso. I didn't want to go to the academy. I wanted to go to Jasofsi or um, whatever. So three of my three three folks, so three medics all made sergeant major in the unit the same list. So myself, uh, Sean Mullins, and Hector Valley Ortiz. They're both pretty high up in the uh, um, SF. You know, I think they're b- both battalion CSMs or right now so we had all made it and there was basically one sergeant major job medical troops our major job and so um two of us two of us got the the boot and um one of us got to stay and uh so then i you know went kicking and screaming to the academy which i absolutely had a great time you know i met some lifelong friends there um i would absolutely encourage it like a lot of folks want to do non-resident stuff right. like that it's it's not the way to go because those connections are what are going to help you for the rest of your tenure in the military. Those are the people you reach out to. And even right now, you know, I just hired, <laughs> I just hired like three of my classmates. They now work with me, um, at the company and, and we've stayed close friends and, and, you know, doing getting business done now, you know, cause I'm a, right now I'm a director of DOD programs. And so, you know, I reach out to former classmates to kind of, help me get work done. And so, um, it was, it's been instrumental in my transition, just those relationships and, and that aspect of, um, of, you know, being able to successfully transition. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, a lot of folks, what I see is they kind of get stuck in that. They're not really a, I, I don't want to say this the wrong way and I don't want it to be taken the wrong way, but essentially you kind of get really good in one area. And that's kind of what I'll describe 
what I used to tell young, the field medic story that would struggle when they go in the hospital and they'd have great NCOERs. And I would be like, well, you've proven that you can be successful in one environment. You have to now prove that you can be successful in this environment or you're, you're not, you're, you're not multidimensional. You, you know, you're kind of, you're, you're great there, but now you've kind of grown out of that role. You're, you're no longer needed to be a squad leader. Now we need you to manage. And so there's an administrative component of most jobs. And so, you know, um, so I say that like a lot of folks, I think get kind of, um, they don't get the exposure when they kind of stay soft centric. And so, um, you know, it's, they have a lot of fun and I wanted to have fun and play to the very end. And, and I, and again, I don't mean play like it's, you know, it's, I say play cause that's what it felt like to me. It was like a never a day of work. It was fun, you know, going out skydiving and, you know, <laughs> just like shooting and doing, you know, just fun stuff, cool stuff all the time and deploying with great people. Um, but the challenges are like learning how to be successful and manage, uh, conventional organizations where not everybody's been through a weeding out selection process. And so those organizations are much more difficult to lead. You know what I mean? You don't have triple volunteers who would, essentially do anything that you've asked to make the mission happen. You really got to f- coach, teach, mentor, problem solve, mitigate, make people work with strengths and weaknesses. Those are challenges. And those helped me, I think, transition, um, are able to transition, I, I guess I would say, you know, and, um, yeah. yeah. And so that's what I would say as far as transitioning is look for some opportunities that are more in line with, you know, what you, the more the corporate business world, if that's what you're going into. Um, um, I think that was helpful for me. I, I think these are all valid points. And I, I think Patty, you probably shared some of the same similarities in terms of, you know, from an officer standpoint and running conventional leadership roles and uh, in the military. And then of course, you know, we talk about your network is your net worth. That's kind of the, the thing with the transition or with the uh, the military that a lot of people don't look at is that growth pattern of trying to go in between different roles. This has been really really fun to listen to, and I and I will disclosure when I know I'm going to interview someone, I'll totally Google stalk you, and you were super hard because I found your LinkedIn profile and that was kind of it. But um, I I do know one of your B knock instructors from when you were just a young whippersnapper that I was actually texting at the beginning of this, and I know some of your civil affairs counterparts. But um, Timmy Strong was a was a worker. I, I worked with Timmy Strong in that organization where you went, and um, I pro- I left there in two thousand and four. So there pro- we could probably play the do you know game, especially in the Medshed was such an impressive group in particular. And I think you know one thing we say about jobs like that is. The best thing about working in a job like that is you never have to leave. But the worst thing is you never have to leave. Right. And so then when you do leave, the first the first thing you notice is like there's there's moments of frustration, certainly. And then you realize I have so many more tools in my toolkit on how to be a leader or a manager or a mentor that I learned from from exact. I love how you described it. Like you didn't have to really always motivate people to do their job. They would have gone, you know, walk through fire for you or for the team and you would have done it as well. And now you have people that have different talents, different motivations. Um, but you still have a pretty big mission, especially, you know, we haven't even gotten to your time at Womack yet, which I'm super excited about of 
how, how do you solve those big humongous challenges? And I would, I would guess you'd say all your experiences leading up to it prepared you for that job. I would have hoped. Uh, actually, you know what? Um, Womack, <laughs> I thought was, I hate to use the word easy, but I had resources. My job before that, so prior to that, I, um, right out of the academy, I was the CSM of MedAc Alaska. So um, it's a, a battalion battalion CSM job. Um, so essentially I had like four E8s and they were pretty long in the tooth E8s. I was a E9 at like 17 years and I had E8s with 24 years in and, and they weren't happy about having the new young guy. So I got little, little help. Um, a lot of time. Um, some of them I did, there's a few, but for the most part, you know, I had to rely heavy on some E7s and they kind of, um, um, picked up some, some slack, but, um, yeah, so that, that was a much greater challenge for me. Um, but that was, uh, you know, that was also my most rewarding job that I had, you know, I'd like to say that, you know, doing all the cool things and deploying as a, as a, um, direct action medic and you know all the school guy stuff and jumping out of airplanes was but really the most rewarding job was really up there and you know i just was at the best medic competition last week where i got to present pistols to um the winning team um it's a new thing we started um and actually uh two of them were my former e4s uh in alaska and so they had done great things and so allowing you know, just by having the authority to say yes, you know, I took pride in never saying no. Like if a soldier asked for something, um, as bad as that may sound, you know, it's just like I would find a way to get them to the school. If they were motivated and they were doing a good job, um, I would I, I think that was my job is to provide them opportunity or, you know, open the door for them, figure out how to open the door for them. So, you know, I would send kids from a hospital in Alaska to airborne school, you know. Um, not very often heard of, not very often done, but, you know, through the network, through, you know, CSMs that were down at the, uh, the maneuver center of excellence, uh, you know, I could make a phone call and, Hey, I need a slot. You know, I just put these kids through SAMSI and they, you know, had E5s get through the SAMSI process or win soldier of the year, you know, just things, just doing a great job and yeah. just being able yeah. to use to it as a back, reward. reward them a little bit yeah. different way that would also enhance their career and open doors for them. Um, you know, that, that truly was rewarding for me. And then once I got to Walmack it, you know, at the brigade level, when you have a staff of sixes, you know, a council of colonels to help you out with your problems, no it gets offense, pretty, Daddy. <laughs> life gets pretty easy. You just walk into a meetings and, you know, you sit down and there's, you know, 10 other O sixes around the table who are there to, to support you and give you the help you need. So, you know, you really just empower them to, to make you know, their, their mission happen and get out of their way. Really. Yeah. You know, let them, let them do what they know how to do. You know, they have them, don't have them there from the neck down, you know, have them there from the neck up thinking and working. So, well, I, I love, you know, your, so your career path was almost perfectly set up and I don't know if it was by design or you actually, you know, 
played a role in it or, or whatever. But I mean, you, you went into specific roles that challenged you in unique ways in different ways. And then, like you said, even when you became a Sergeant major and you went kicking, screaming to the schoolhouse, but yet you made, uh, made friends and created a network that would help you even grow even further, or at least help you be a better leader because then you could reward your staff. And then having a challenge that you had in Alaska that set you up for the opportunities, probably not just at Womack, but even for life thereafter as being a brand new leader and, and someone that has to prove himself once again, it, it's, it's like the perfect story, you know, this is, but this is what people should listen and pay attention to in a very early career. The advice that you're providing of the career path that you took and, and what you're saying about not always saying soft and challenging yourself outside of that, looking for those hospital opportunities and those things that are the uncomfortable and not nearly as fun will help build your, you know, your career, not just within the military, but life thereafter. It's it's a growth, right? I mean, you grew all the time through this whole thing. Yeah, I definitely, there was definitely growth there. You know, uh, I, I it, yeah, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that, you know, that there wasn't some regression <laughs> along the path. It, it, you know, it's, it's a it's a pretty painting now standing back and watching it but <laughs> yeah there was there was some definitely some uh some poor strokes in there along the way but um i mean i mean yeah i mean um and the, you know um you know once i got to womack and then it was really just um you know I, my career was actually so i got selected on the csl uh, the command select list you kind of put in for the jobs you want and so if you so I, my number one choice was Hawaii. I wanted to go back to Hawaii. I wanted to end my career where I started my career. And um, um, actually, that's, there's a little bit more to this story. So actually, I, I, um, I got a call from the unit CSM asking me to take over the unit med section um, back. And so um, then I found out the, um, the only person who can let you out of the CSL process is the sergeant major of the Army. And so I got quickly got told no you're on the CSL, but I didn't know what job I was. Then I found out I got my number one pick, Hawaii. So not so bad until I got a call. I got a call from um, Sergeant Major Ecker at the time, who was the um, MedCom uh, Sergeant Major for the Office of the Surgeon General. And he said, hey, I hope you didn't want to go to Hawaii because I'm sending you to Fort Bragg. Oh. And I was like, uh, Roger, Roger, Sergeant Major. So he's like. <laughs> Yeah, you know all those great things you were doing in Alaska? I need you to do them at Womack. Um, I had started, um, I had started a, a prolonged field care program for the conventional medic at the time. There was, there was nothing out there, so I had created a course to kind of – it was when the kind of the, everything was going on in the peninsula mm -hmm. um, in Korea. Um, I had gotten asked due to my background, can you create a – course you know korea there we were gonna you know it was kind of a prolonged field care um that was the um, kind of that's what the expectation was there was going to be no great tail access to move patients there was going to be overwhelming kind of casualties and people were going to have to sit on them and medics weren't trained to sit on casualties so i kind of created a program while i was over there so i got asked to bring it to brag and um so yeah kind of success kind of got me out of my um my what would you call it what's that called it's not your, your, your comfort sure. zone <laughs> no it's you know like uh it, not your honeymoon assignment but your oh, um, yeah. uh, 
Your swan song. Yeah. So I was like, oh, it's going to be beautiful. It started in Hawaii and it's going to end in Hawaii. Yeah. What, did you, what did your wife say when you're like, honey, we're not going back to Hawaii? Um, I didn't really read her into the whole thing. So. Ooh. <laughs> strong move. <laughs> no, not until there are orders in hand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the army needed me to do something. So, you know, what? You, I mean, what? what's the other answer when, you know, the, the office of the Surgeon General says, hey, I need you to do a job. Oh, Roger, that's our major. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty the only answer. So, well, yeah. I, and I want to, you know, you talked about the the transition and everything, but I, I think it would be really cool to talk about what you're doing right now. And you kind of highlighted that and that you, you know, you just got an opportunity to, to hand out pistols to guys that were E4s at the time frame. So help us kind of understand how you, you made that transition, how you came into the role that you are right now. So it's a really um, kind of a odd path and it's um, it's kind of like tragedy and um, with a good outcome. Let's just call it that. So um, basically, you know, coming towards about my first year into the job, I started experience a lot of old PTSD stuff, symptoms, um, and, you know, I became suicidal and, you know, got hospitalized. And, um, so I ended up on, I, I got med board, you know, I ended, I didn't, I didn't regularly retire, you know, I medically retired and, um, you know, it's, it's not the way I thought I was going to end my career. You know, things were going great. You know, I was selected for a second brigade. It would probably be a nominative CSM right now. Um, but you know, life caught up and just, you know, a lot of, you know, 11 deployments caught up continuously. I had, um, you know, I, you had mentioned the Hunter seven stuff. I don't, haven't done a lot with them, but I have done a lot with, uh, Sean Mulvaney, who's, uh, one of the lead, um, mm -hmm. uh, researchers. And, um, we, we kind of took the Stellet ganglion block across SOCOM. You know, he, we took it to the unit at Bragg. Paul's there. had it. Yeah, Thanks. the unit at way, um, you know at at Damnick, and um, I had five shots myself, <laughs> um, and so um, yeah, so that caught up with me. I ended up in a hospitalization, and then I did an intensive outpatient program where I went to Fort Sam and really got like six weeks of in depth work done. Um, all during that time, I started you know, kind of trying to get a hobby again. And I, you know, developed um, medical device, a hemorrhage control device for junctional hemorrhage controls. And I developed that. And so as I was kind of going through that process, I started kind of trying to figure life out um, and figure out what I wanted to do. So um, I, once I got out of the program, you know, it was, it's like, okay, you're going to go through the med board process. And for senior leaders, uh, it's once you go into that process, you're not going back into the military. There, there's, you're, you're on your way out. Um, and so, you know, I kind of um, took it in stride and just, um, I really kind of pushed away, you know, and, and kind of, I didn't, I don't, it wasn't, um, it was intentional, um, but it wasn't out of 
embarrassment, you know, because I've never I've talked a lot about PTSD and traveled around and talked to, at SOMA about it and other things. Um, but I pushed away from the organization. I didn't try to still be the CSM. Um, I let my battalion CSM kind of go in and obviously it got support from my commander and told him I wanted to do a career skill program. Kind of told him I've been working on a medical device and I'd like to intern with the company. And that's where I got linked up with my current job uh, at Combat Medical and Safeguard Medical. Um, started by two former uh, Delta Force medics and they made devices like oh, combat gauze and the croc, you know, some pretty well-known devices and took on my device and got to end up getting a licensing and royalty agreement with them where they're you know putting my device through the fda process and i and i started interning as a, a product developer and so um you know in that in that time they they offered me a job and you know i was just sitting back there making devices and they'd give me a problem and i'd sit back there and work on a problem and um you know, then eventually my, my time came and, you know, I, my, my, um, my medical board was finished and I transitioned over and started working with the company. Um, and to kind of what Patty said, you know, how did you word it? Your, um, I always call it your Rolodex, right? People want you for your Rolodex, but you said your net worth is equal to directly proportional to your yeah. <laughs> net worth or something like yeah. that. Yeah, your net worth. That's pretty good. I like yeah. that. Your net worth um, is which your is net worth. Which is absolutely true in business, um, what I've learned. And so it's not that they use people, but um, industry definitely needs help to get in some doors. And there's a shelf life to everybody's Rolodex. And so, you know, um, so I was, you know, obviously worked with a lot of people and pretty connected. So, um, you know, they eventually offered me a job. To, to move up and become a director of um, uh, DOD programs. And so I, you know, start doing that. And right now, you know, I, it scratches that itch for me where I still get to be involved with soldiers and go out and support them and go talk to them and, you know, support things like the best medic and go and visit and, and really help expand their medical capabilities and work on, just because I'm so in tune with um, that um, space where, you know, me creating medical capability essentially at the medic level. And it, um, so, yeah, you're working with units to, you know, we're working with you know, some of the cores for their whole blood programs, fresh whole blood on the battlefield. You know, SOF's been doing it for a while, but for the conventional force, that's new, you know. Um, and there's a lot of logistical and training deficits that have to be crossed to 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 make that fully function. You know, soft does things relatively easy because they're relatively small. You know, they can incorporate new quick uh, new capability pretty quick and make realistic um, real time change. But you know, big armies like moving a, a battleship, you know, it turns slow. Um, so. Um, so, yeah, so that's, you know, kind of, kind of, you know, what got me here and what got me to do things like that and why I still enjoy it. You know, I still get to give back. And so, you know, I think that you've, I think most of us, once we've spent a, a career dedicating, you know, I don't know, you know, what, what brings you guys to doing these podcasts, but I think it's a little bit of that connection to the tribe. It's the same thing. If you will. Yeah. Um, 
and that sense of uh, family and common language um, events, you know, and so, you know, that's, that's what got me here. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing today, I guess. Well, along that path, I think you, you know, you had to have um, kind of a, a dose or a sense of like reality, humility and, and such, because I mean, you go from being a CSM, uh, somebody who had served in a soft community, um, who is kind of humbled a little bit in, in terms of, you know, having to confront the, the challenges that you did with post-traumatic stress, but then also making a transition and you go in at an internship level. And then, you know, as a guy that's working at a, a very low level within an organization um, and building your way back up into it, as opposed to somebody walking out the door and once again, using my Rolodex and making something happen with the title that I feel like I've earned from my time in the military. And, and what I think what it says more about you, Uriah, is that you, you, you weren't possibly as focused much as much on that as you were trying to find your passion and purpose. And you knew that it had a lot to do with giving back in some ways and using your skills and talents and expertise to, to help that community grow. And it's something that you love so much. You know, that, that's what it sh uh, says to me, at least, by listening to this, as opposed to hunting yeah. the almighty dollar and the title, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think that, I, you know, I kind of, I don't want to say beat up on soft, but our folks, but I think that's what soft, there is a bit of humility that is in there and it's personability that you kind of learn. You learn to deal with people and work with people as, as them. You know, the first name, you know, a lot of times soft gets beat up on the first name thing and really just we treat each other as Joe and Bobby and Dan. But really, those are some really valuable skills. And when you let your position and your ego be directly linked to your you and your, you know, your, your inner self, that's when you, I think have the greatest. So it was very easy for me, although Nikki might say different. I think you guys know Nikki. She oh, yeah. works for me. Um, <laughs> we work together, I should say. Um, but to let go of the Sergeant major role, it was very, you know, I always like just being Uriah, you know, I'm, I'm just a dude. Uh, my service is no greater than anybody else's. Matter of fact, your service is probably better than mine. I never had to do 18 months, you know, on a rotation. You know, my hat was always off to those guys that, I, you know, I was rotating in and out of theater. I may have been there two or three times and they were still there. So, you know, that, you know, that always, that piece alone always kind of kept me grounded and that, what I'm doing is not better than you. It's just different. You're, you are absolutely um, just as valuable and just as critical. And the things you're doing, they're, they're not for nothing. And so, so I think that's one thing that, um, you know, helped help me, I say, transition is just that, that dynamic of soft, of dealing with people as people. You know, Patty probably knows, you know, I, I lived as a civilian for six years. My senior six years in the military, I was never a first sergeant. I was never a platoon sergeant. I was a CSM. I was a team medic and then a CSM. I was never even a staff sergeant major. So it was quite odd. <laughs> to, like, make a formation. Um, let me see. Let me, let me. 
let me watch YouTube the night before and get in the manuals. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, you know, that's, I think that helped me a lot, having those years of just kind of dealing with people, people working with contractors every day and civilians and really everybody, you're, you know, you're in the military, but really, you know, everybody's kind of, it's, it's that, it's a, it's a communication barrier. I always thought the uniform, uniform was a huge communication barrier, barrier, you know, my squadron CSM, uh, DJ Blake, um, probably a lot of folks know him, especially he was, I don't know if he's still the JSOC CSM or if he transitioned out, but he was my squadron CSM for a long time in the unit. And, um, you know, it was always easy and approachable to talk to these people who were such accomplished humans. Um, and you know, it didn't take any or diminish the respect and you always know when, when to act accordingly, but you didn't have that community, that communication barrier of a uniform there that kind of halts dialogue and that personable connection with people. And so, um, you know, I thought that was extremely helpful and I draw on that all the time. And, you know, it's, you know, in the unit, I don't know if I'm talking to an E4 admin assistant or the E8, they, they both know their job really well, you know? So, yeah, you know, I just, I, I never really learned to associate rank that way. Um, you know, I just kind of treat everybody with respect and, and, you yeah. know, you're either good at your job or you're not. <laughs> yeah. Well, so what's next for you, uh, Uriah? So when, when you start looking, you know, you, you kind of help map out what your path was, you know, kind of to this point and some of that stuff you either fell into somebody forced you into or whatever, but it seems like you've had a pattern of growth that's occurred through this whole thing. Just curious. What's, what are you thinking in terms of your passion and purpose and where it might end up taking you? Um, I've honestly been thinking a lot about that lately. You know, I'm kind of like, I don't know if it's a midlife crisis that I'm going through. Um, I already had a sports car, so I haven't bought one of those. Gold jewelry? But... You got the gold jewelry yet or anything? No. no it's usually one uh, or the other. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, it didn't do that. But it's like, I know that my, well, it just feels like I should be being a better steward with my time now and family yeah. and that I've kind of dedicated, you know, the past 23 years to being away and how much time is left on earth and how much of that is, you know, time that I'm fully functioning and able to do things and enjoy things. And, and, you know, it's kind of puts into perspective, do, do I need to be doing all this right now? Do I need to be continuing? Am I doing this for me? Um, you know, why, why am I continuing to try to climb? But I think that's, you're kind of, certain folks are just ingrained with that. You start from the bottom and then you want to climb to the top of the ladder again. And then you're back at the bottom of the ladder. Now you want to top to the climb. And it's just like a, it's cyclic. You just, you know, it's just, it's ingrained in you to do it. But now I'm like, should I be breaking that chain? Should I maybe be looking at something that's allows me the little bit more time and flexibility to, you know, I've never taken vacations. I never, you know, did any of that stuff. You know, I best did a work vacation, <laughs> you know, bring the, bring the wife when I'm TDY and she gets to go hang out in the mall. <laughs> right. Right. Do whatever she does while I'm at work. That that's vacation. That's, 
you know, cause half the ticket was paid for by uncle Sam. So that, that's, that's what I know about vacation. So it's, um, it's good. You're going through that exercise though, because I think, you know, many, many moons ago, we had an author that came on and she, I think she, her book is actually a New York times bestseller that talked about disrupting yourself uh, on occasion. And that was the term that she kind of, you know, used. And, and when you think about it, you know, back in the day, and we still kind of do it, I guess, for some uh, PCs, you don't do it as much for Macs. You hit Control-Alt-Delete every once in a while because things are screwing up and your computer's not acting right. And so you just decide, okay, I'm just going to reboot this thing. And maybe it'll solve the problem. And, and sometimes it does. Uh, but in our own lives, we don't think about that as at certain points we have to self-reflect and we've got to think about the priorities and the things that are, you know, are most really important to us. And you hit on things like family and and time with them and stuff like that because your time on earth is is really finite i mean you don't you only have so much time and so in that sense you know occasionally um throughout our lives if we thought about disrupting in terms of rebooting and reflecting and saying all right i'm gonna i'm gonna change something now it's time for me to reboot time for me to go in a different direction and you did that through your military career and going from in and out of soft to going into you know conventional forces whether it was by choice or not and and you're kind of you know looking at that in your career right now um so it's just another way of offering perhaps as a, a way of expressing it that you're right now in a, a state of it's time to disrupt it's time for a change and and disrupt could be something mild like you're saying in your personal life and not necessarily in your professional at least that's how I would look at it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good, you know, it's insightful, you know? Um, yeah. I think, I think that that I, I do look at that, you know, I look at, you know, we, I've always been in a pretty close family, you know, close military family. My, my kids all still come around, you know, and, um, my mom and dad visit all the time. And so, you know, I look at where they are in their lives and what, you know, they're doing and uh, me and my dad actually worked together, which were quite, um, I, I recruited him to the company, <laughs> he was Did running you? the night vision program for the military. And then um, I said, we need a good acquisition guy and program management. So, um, but yeah, so now we get to work and spend some time together. But yeah, I think, you know, it's, yeah, I think that that's what it is. It's, it's, you know, it's, I think it's time to, um, it's time to maybe live not so much for self, you know, although we, we work to provide, right. That's why we work, you know, to provide a quality of life and a certain, um, lifestyle. But, um, at times that becomes not important, mm -hmm. you know, and you, you need to think about, I think those times. And that's what I guess makes me reflect back about when my son, when he tells me, you know, you know, you, you were never around, you know, I don't know if you realize that, but you were never there. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely, you know, and if people did that more earlier in their career or in life and everything else, it certainly helps build upon that much later. But we tend to get so focused up in everything that we're doing that, you know, it's one of those things we usually don't do until we're much older. We start reflecting. No, it's funny because it's sort of like an analogous to what most guys, I think, and gals go through when they're getting out of service or they're going through it. And you got to start a new job like you were talking about the, the line medics stuff. Like you, you should strive to be the best, but you don't get to be the best at that one thing forever. Like you're going to have to find another mountain to climb. And, uh, I was cool. That's, I got a lot out of that. A ton of humility. I really, yeah, I agree. Hats off, man. Thank you. 
Yeah, I love that you, I mean, you've been in so many different jo- different kinds of jobs. Um, and uh, I love that you shared your story. I love, I, I don't love that it happened to you, but I, I love that you tackled this as a very senior person. Um, we're not apologetic about it. And, you know, you kind of walked through that fire while you were still on active duty. And I think, as all of us know, we think that we are better as a department sharing stories like that and saying it's okay to get help and there's nothing wrong with it. And yet for as many stories as I hear about people that are open and honest and walk through it, there are 10 times as many that said my chain of command wouldn't let me do this or told me not to do that or whatever. So, I I mean, I think it's super important. I think it's a story that we just continue to tell. I think, you know, when you talked about the climb, um, and I think we all went through that. And I think what I found is I look for different ways to use my talents. So I don't think I've climbed any mountains, frankly. I think there are a bunch of little hills where I was like, I want to do a little bit of nonprofit work and I want to do a little bit of speaking and tell my story. And I, you know, Robert sent me a t-shirt. So now I do a podcast. Um, and I think that that's, 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 that's all it took. Yeah. That was all it took. Truly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, um, you know, it going through it. I mean, I can certainly see it in, um, as far as the, not so much the support, I would say, for the transition effort. I would say it much more than um, I felt like when I was going through my struggle, the um, it was we can't have a senior leader committing suicide and be on the Army Times. So we need to adjudicate this very quick, make it suffice, dis, um, decisive, support him and move on. Um, and so I think that's what I seen. And I got a friend who's from uh, g- a good friend of mine. He worked for me. He spent a long time in the Ranger Regiment. Um, and he's doing the same exact program that I did right now. And he was a or is a CSM. And he's, you know, you know, same thing. He it's the fast track out whether I think that they should hold on to you a little bit longer and let you work through it so you can truly get the help you need instead of it's 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 much more like a streamlined process for disposition versus a process for treatment yeah it's it's sort of like uh get them get this this equipment off your books before it breaks down and you're stuck with it you know yeah. let's, let's put it out and it's, yeah and that's what i always thought like like i said my son um had a similar path. Um, and, but the difference is he was in E2, E3 at the time. And so like his, his, um, going through that process was much more difficult. And, you know, I kind of got the carpet rolled out as I went through the process. Oh, let me help you. And let me fast track your paperwork and let me give you your own manager who manages things for you. And, um, so, you know, that's where I can see that folks don't get the help they need. And, you know, with the issues that we have with suicide and things like that. And it's, you know, that it's, it's not a completely broken system, but it, it just needs, I think, emphasis dedicated to some, some of the parts that it's not um, dedicated towards, or there's just a, you know what I mean? It, it's, it almost seems like it's, it's about preservation of, the force and I don't mean the people <laughs> it's like 
it's okay. And I get it. You know, the army's got to go marching along, but I also believe in, you know, like I said, Sean Mulvaney, who I hold him in such high regard. He always says you, we have to have the ability to, to, um, you know, separate people and give them a, a quality of life and let them live with dignity and respect. And that's why his, his treatment modalities have always been to, and I always thought about that, you know, like return them, give them a quality of, of life and where they have some, some self-respect when they, when they transition and, and separate service. Um, and so, you know, I've always kind of carried that with me, but I think that, you know, there's there's some there's obvious there's some obvious things that need improvement on, but um, we'll see. <laughs> it's a lot yeah. better than it was. It, that's for sure. It is. It's a long yeah, way I guess to that's go. the that's the optimistic way. way to look at it. Yeah, there's it's 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 improving, um, but it's a lot too. It's a big elephant to eat, you know. So it's yeah. just figuring out which piece should we eat first. I think you know instead of trying to get the whole thing at once. So yeah, sure. well, I think whenever we get to share stories like yours, it goes a long way because they think, you know, like they think it's the E2 or the E3 and it's some kid in the barracks or it's somebody from a broken home or a checkered past. And maybe they were on the verge anyway. Maybe they were going to do what they were going to do without the army because we get extreme personality types. But yeah, you know, for, for me, my, my like light bulb moment, my first sergeant was like, Hey, I'm a drunk. I hate my kids. I hate my life. I'm going to get help. I talked to a therapist. He's like, if you feel this yeah. way, you need to do it too. And I'm like, this guy's made of iron. Like I, I didn't think anything could affect him like that. And it, it gave me that space to reflect and probably save my life, you know? And so I mean, if it can happen to guys like that, it can happen to guys like you. Then it, you know, it, it really does a lot to yeah. that stigma for that. Yeah. There's resiliency, but I don't think there is no like immunity. <laughs> You know, I don't think anybody's immune to it. You know, there's there's, there's definitely people who are you know, have some extreme levels of res- resiliency and perseverance. But um, but hey, thanks. You know, I, I I appreciate you guys having me on and um, absolutely sharing sharing a little bit of the story. No, I appreciate you coming on. I mean that with all sincerity. I think again, the the lessons and stuff and stories that you provided are stuff that. Um, quite honestly, we don't always get to hear, you know, um, we, we put our soft community in some cases very much high on a pedestal, whereas other people listen to, um, people within the soft and think, well, there's a whole force out here that you've recognized within this show. That's the conventional force that, you know, does equally, or does just as much good stuff that doesn't get recognized. And so by you being somebody that had the opportunity to see both sides of it and present both sides of that and recognize, you know, the value, um, you know, that, that's, that's really great. I, I think that they're not always recognized in that way. So, and again, man, I, I appreciate you even talking about, you know, your journey through post-traumatic stress and some of the challenges. And oh you know, yeah, no, it definitely affects the, I, I learned that from some of my early trips with, you know, Sean and we would go down to, to damn Nick and basically, you know, <laughs> operators would be lined all the way up down the hallway. And, you know, on I, I, I distinctly remember one guy on his 23rd rotation. And um, it was it was the oddest thing. We um, he was pissed. So we, we gave him the shot and he got up and he was mad. He was like, Doc, 
I don't like this shit. Um, I don't feel like I want to hurt people anymore. And I need to feel like I can hurt people. And I need to hurt people. <laughs> wow. It was just like, okay. Oh, <laughs> uh, I, yeah. I mean, Paul had it. And we know others who have had it as well. And I knew somebody yeah. here that was a good family friend that had the um, SGB. And it was life-changing for him. And Paul said yeah. the same thing. Um, but... Listen, I think, you know, what you're doing now and the way in which you're giving back um, and even coming on this show, quite honestly, and sharing your journey and your story uh, are one of those things that are, you know, a way of healing, a way of moving forward and and those types of things. And I I wish you nothing but the best, but um, I actually appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your story, you know, for sure with all of us. Oh, thanks. Happy to do it. 